Plot Happy Hour, a podcast in which I, Amanda, a real live human, tells me, Tina, a real live opera singer, about the plot of an opera, and then we ruin it for everyone. That's right, everyone. We're flipping the script this week. Normally, I have no idea which opera we're going to talk about, but this week Tina asked me to give a synopsis of a spoopy opera for our spoopy spoop to spoopra october what did we call it last week spoopra it's spoopra (laughs) (laughs) so tina has no idea which opera we're going to talk about but except she does (laughs) yeah because i picked it but like i don't know about the opera so i'm excited to actually like hear about it beginning to end for the first time ever yes but i also do know who the composer is and i have a bio for you (gasps) Is it a minute? I mean, I didn't, like, time it or anything. Um, But are we just going to do it? I think we have to. Okay. All right. I'm going to give it to you in in, in the style of fact slash Missy Mazzoli fact. So I'm going to give you a real-life fact followed by a Missy Mazzoli fact. All right. I'm getting a timer ready here. Okay. I'm, like, nervous all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah, It's nerve-wracking to have to do this in a minute. I'm tempted to give you extra seconds just to be nice, but I don't think I will. <sighs> Fine. Because I'm being a bitch. Okay, here we go. Ready? Uh-huh. Set? Uh-huh. Go. Fact. Today is Tuesday, October 26, 2021. Missy Mazzoli fact. Tomorrow, October 27th, 2021, is Missy Mazzoli's 41st birthday. By the time you hear this podcast, it'll be too late for that, so you'll have to at her a belated birthday wish on the social medias. Fact. Mozart has never once been nominated for a Grammy. Missy Mazzoli fact. She was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Classical Composition in 2018. Fact. The Metropolitan Opera has only twice staged performances of operas written by women and has never yet presented an opera commissioned from a woman. Missy Mazzoli fact. In 2018, she became one of the first two women to ever be commissioned by the Met. Fact. Most living and active composers are hard to find biographical information on. Missy Mazzoli fact. She actually has a detailed Wikipedia page where you can learn facts like she has a master's degree from Yale School of Music, which she earned in 2006, and then the same year she taught composition at the Yale School of Music. And she's currently on faculty at the Mann School of Music, was a composer in residence at Opera Philadelphia, and won a Fulbright grant to the Netherlands. Fact. In 2014, a TV show was made based on a memoir written by an oboist... But keep going, because I want to know. Okay, so this memoir was written uh, by an oboist, Blair Tyndall, about her career in New York City, and the memoir was called Mozart in the Jungle, Sex, Drugs, and Classical Music, and the TV show Mozart in the Jungle was made from that. And Missy Mazzoli fact, uh, much of the original music in that show was composed by Missy Mazzoli. Cool. And then one final fact, you are listening to a podcast. (laughs) Missy Mazzoli fact. She is featured in an episode of another podcast that you may have heard of called Radio Lab, and that episode is from April 6, 2020, and it's called The Cataclysm Sentence, and the premise comes from the physicist Richard Feynman, who posed the question in a Caltech lecture 
if in some cataclysm all scientific knowledge were to be destroyed and only one sentence was passed on to the next generation of creatures, what statement would contain the most information in the fewest words? And so the entire episode like explores that question and Missy Mazzoli is featured and she's come up with a musical answer to the question with something she calls the primordial chord. And the whole episode is awesome, but if you want to just skip to the Missy Mazzoli bit, it starts around the 54-minute mark. It is really good. It is a really, really good episode of Radio Lab, and that interview is fantastic. I yeah. have heard that a couple of times. Yeah. And Missy Mazzoli is just, like, so good at speaking about music and what it is that she does, and she does it in, like, such a casual way. It's not like she's got her nose in the air. She's really personable. I have had the pleasure of exchanging emails with her a couple times because, and this is also the reason that Tina knew she could ask me to do a synopsis of this and not have it be too big of an ask. I'm going to be directing this uh, next fall. It was a pre-pandemic plan that got pushed out quite a ways because pandemic. Um, but so she and I have emailed a little bit um, and I'm hoping I might reach out to her again because I have questions. Um, but yeah, she's just a super, super cool person. And then you read her Wikipedia article and you're like, oh, she's one of those people that's like too legit to quit and also really nice and relatable and down to earth. How... How lucky are we to live in a world <laughs> where once in a while that happens? Where we exist at the same time as Missy Mazzoli. <laughs> I yeah. mean, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so, Tina, Amanda. the opera tonight, you know, and I know, but our audience does not know, is Missy Mazzoli and Royce Vavrick's Proving Up. Royce Vavrick is the librettist, and the opera Proving Up is named after a based on uh, a short story by the same name by an author named Karen Russell. Definitely recommend you read the short story. Um, although the synopsis does a pretty, I would say that it's pretty true to the story. I don't think that there's a whole lot of diversion from the short story itself. Um, but yeah, should we get started? Yeah, it's okay. going to be like, it's going to be weird because when I react to things in real life, I usually do it like in my head and then on the outside with a facial expression. Like I don't react in words as often. So I'm going to have to like try and this, put my thoughts into words. Yeah, this will be interesting for that reason. And the other reason is that I don't usually write the synopsis. And this is also an opera that I'm very well acquainted with and have had a lot of time now. <laughs> <laughs> when you think about the fact we were supposed to stage this in 2020, I've had a lot of time to imagine the world of this opera and like it was very difficult for me to come up with a synopsis that wasn't also my director vision of what I want this show to look like. And I ended up writing it in like prose. Like it's I kind of wrote it like it's a spooky story. So it, it well, we'll see what happens. Um yeah, this this should be fun. Okay, so first thing that you need to know. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Doing great so far. Off to the races. Okay. <laughs> All right, so let's start with the cast of characters and the setting of this opera real quick, just for getting ourselves situated. We are... At a homestead in Nebraska around 1870, the characters are Miles Zegner, an 11-year-old runt, as he is described. He's a tenor. 
Uh, Mr. Johannes Pa Zegner, who's his father, a baritone. Mrs. Johannes Ma Zegner, his mother, soprano. And I love that last week we talked about how people like to say Mrs. Husband's first name, last name. <laughs> yes. And they were doing it again this week. Uh, we also have Peter Zegner, who is Miles's 16-year-old brother and who is actually an actor and has no spoken dialogue. Which is really interesting. Oh, so he he's not a singing part. Correct. But he he's also like doesn't a speak. Silent rule. He also doesn't speak. He's like a he's a named supernumerary, <laughs> kind of. Kind of. I personally, absolutely do not want to handle it that way because I think that we'll get into it later. But this this role matters. So I hired a goddamn actor to play this role, like a like a good one <laughs> that I know that I know is going to like really dig into it, even though it's really kind of intangible, I guess. OK, OK, we hold also on, hold on, oh, hold yeah. on one second. I just need to ask about. So Miles mm -hmm. is an 11 year old boy, but is played by a tenor. Yes. So the age of the characters and the age of the actors don't really correlate as much <laughs> in the opera well, i mean it never does in opera but like we usually solve this problem by hiring a, like a pants roll mezzo yep. to nope. play a young boy and it's nope. not that case nope it's a tenor and i guess i don't know why it didn't go in that direction although i will say that the way that it's sung i mean it's just a really i think you would call him a light lyric tenor just a very pleasing and light voice it sounds youthful um so i guess yeah i don't i don't know what that was about i wonder if missy mazzoli will tag us back and tell us why yeah, i'm just she imagining a six tenor. foot tall man playing an 11 yeah. year old boy but yep. you know yep no we have a fully grown adult man playing this role and there's definitely you have to suspend your disbelief you also have this is a good segue to adult women playing the Zegner daughters. You have the taller daughter who's a mezzo and the litter, littler daughter who's a soprano. Wait, they're called taller daughter and littler daughter. They indeed are. Okay. All right. <laughs> yes. Cool. Yes. Um, and then we have the black-lipped sodbuster who is a willowy stranger and is a bass. And I am... When I tell you that this man has to have impressive range, I'm pretty sure that this role was written for an actor like for a singer who had the range to do this you have to have just the lowest of lows and then you have to have very very strong falsetto to sing this role it's a hard one to cast wow we are still working on it if you are local to the twin cities and would like to go out for this role please contact me would love to hear you submit for this role this is a hard one to cast yeah that's a that's a really hard thing for local and regional companies who yeah. specifically hire local and regional singers like yeah. i'm sure if you if you were to expand the search and hire mm -hmm. out but that's not what this company does so and it's also mm. it's also tricky because this company is one in particular that um it's it's woman founded it's woman run um and we prioritize works by uh, female composers by new composers uh, about stories that are um you know, uh, part part of part of a, an expansion and a moving forward of the of women in the world, and then furthermore, we recognize that there is a huge um, pay gap in opera, and it's because you have 
I think, what was it? I did this research recently for a fundraiser we did. Of the 120 most performed operas, I think, uh, you've got... I, I can't remember the statistic. I apologize. I will I will find it and I will post it somewhere. But um, it, it was something like you basically you've got a chunk of the, the most performed operas and 70, 80 percent of the roles are men's roles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you look at the graduation rates of people graduating with music performance degrees and it's pretty consistently 75 percent women. Mm -hmm. So you've got a million sopranos and mezzos and contraltos not enough roles for them and then you've got a dearth of men which means that they're able to a have less training and get better roles and b negotiate higher rates for themselves yeah because they know that they're in demand and that puts companies like this one in a position where we either can't pay them what they're asking or in order to get them, we not only have to pay them what they're asking, but we also have to find a way to then raise the rates for all of the other female characters in the cast because it would go directly against the mission for us to yeah. outpay the female cast members. Yes, that is a conundrum. Let me ask you this. <laughs> um, a friend of mine who is actually a contralto, um, she was... She's currently in a production of Traviata mm -hmm. where she is singing the father. They've reimagined it as a mother instead. Mm. Is that something you could do with the role of Sodbuster? Or is it like it's too new and you don't want to go against Miss It's too wishes? new. Okay. It's too new and I don't want to go against the wishes. And I think that when this opera has been in the canon for, you know, 50 years, we can talk about that. But this is, I think, going to be like the 10th maybe performance of this opera ever by yeah. the time it gets done um and that might be even a high number it might be more like the seventh or the sixth um so it's just too new and yeah. if you listen to this which i highly recommend you do it is a fabulous 75 minute one act and it is just i mean it's perfect for spooktober and it's gorgeous and unexpected and you will immediately be hooked on Missy Mazzoli's composition style. Um, I I don't I don't think you can, I don't think you can have this be a soprano. All right, that's or fair. Or a contralto. Yeah, I just don't think you can. I've already totally <sighs> derailed this episode. Okay. All right, tell me about a plot. All right, all right, let's talk about this. So we open with the prologue. Pa is singing Uncle Sam's Farm, which is an actual song from the time period, but that has been adapted by missy to be underscored with this haunting and dissonant strings and i think there's a little bit of some of the reed instruments in there too but it's mostly the strings there is something like 13 or 18 acoustic guitars but they're hung and they're played percussively and they kind of give this effect of I think what it's supposed to, it's its written in the score, uh, to be like the effect of wind moving through the wheat. But it's really, I i think they, they almost like hammer the um, the strings really I'm, I'm picturing them using spoons. <laughs> I don't know I'm why spoons came I'm to my mind. I'm picturing the little thing that the doctor uses on her knees. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not totally That's sure. So cool though. We should have had Brian Dowdy on this to talk about this. He's our he's our uh, music director, but um, yeah, it's really really cool. And not to mention just the fact that they're hung, 
makes them part of the scenery in a really profound oh, way, which is really cool. And I like, I like that a lot. Is, it's innovative, but it's it's done in an accessible way. Like you're mm-hmm. not suspending like some super obscure instrument like I don't know, some really weird tuned percussion instrument you can only find somewhere mm-hmm. obscure in the world. Mm-hmm. It's like guitars, like you can it's, find those. Yeah, yep, totally. So I want to give a sample of the lyrics of this song that, again, is an actual song from the time period. It opens with, come along, come along, make no delay. Come from every nation, come from every way. Our lands, they are broad enough. Don't be alarmed. Uncle Sam is rich enough to give us all a farm. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) Hold on. Basically, uh, this song is written by white people for white people. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> and are we not going to talk about like? Oh no, we'll we'll talk about it. Land that they're on. Okay, all right, cool. Yeah, we'll talk about it. Uh, it does not, to be fair, appear in the short story or the libretto. But this is a choice that I will be making as a director to try and figure out a way that we can incorporate some discussion about that um into the production itself but i digress hey, yeah we white people have claimed yeah. this land hey more white people let's move on to yep, it Yep, totally and again these are lyrics taken directly from the time period this was a this was a marketing song this was sign up for the homestead act of 1862 um and the the contrast of these optimistic ho- hopeful lyric lyrics against this really dark and unsettling score set the stage really well for what is about to ensue. So before we dig into this, I want to educate anyone who needs to be or refresh a memory on what the Homestead Act is. Um, so both the title of the first scene of the opera and an actual piece of legislation from 1862, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Homestead Act on May 20th, 1862, which gave citizens or future citizens up to 160 acres of quote-unquote public land provided they live on it improve it and pay a small registration fee prior to the passage of this law and beginning shortly after the revolutionary war there were many obstacles to the western expansion or more accurately i would like to say continued colonization of the western and midwestern indigenous lands of north america initially uh it was expensive uh for would-be settler colonizers to expand boundaries were really unclear land disputes were really common um and then later on in like the 1850s ish um northern factories were kind of lobbying against it because they thought shit we're gonna lose all of our cheap laborers they're gonna go become farmers and the southern states were also generally against it because they were worried that expansion would give rise to competition farms that were run by anti-slavery farmers So then when the lower 12 states seceded during the Civil War, that was kind of the final barrier to the passing of the legislation. So the Homestead Act was officially put into effect and it read, uh, actually, I'm not sure if this is a quote directly from the document, but I'm going to post my source. Any U.S. citizen or intended citizen who had never borne arms against the U.S. government, so not (laughs) if you're part of a southern state (laughs) that seceded, um, could file an application and lay claim to 160 acres of surveyed government land. For the next five years, the General Land Office looked for a good faith effort by the homesteaders. This meant that the homestead was their primary residence and that they made improvements upon the land. 
After five years, the homesteader could file for his patent or deed of title by submitting proof of residency and the required improvements, asterisk, Uh uh to a local land office. Hmm. What are your thoughts? What are my thoughts? I mean, I feel like it's already kind of obvious what my thoughts are, but also I'm just imagining the old computer game Oregon Trail. (laughs) (laughs) You have died of dysentery. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And how like had like playing that game growing up and watching Little House on the Prairie and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, look at this quaint lifestyle. And they're all just trying to survive and be good people. And it's not like they were actively working against other people to act against other people Mm -hmm. they were just not just but they were they were trying to better themselves to the detriment of other people who they saw as less than people right and that's really unfortunate (laughs) yeah yep it's uh kind of like this age-old story of the upper class like the aristocracy marginalizing based on white supremacy and then pitting the lowest classes of white citizens against those uh people of color indigenous people um but still having them basically be their peons Mm -hmm. and so you've got a huge number of marginalized people marginalized for different reasons but then a good chunk of them are benefiting from white supremacy at the same time as being these it's 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 just garbage all the oh, time you forever. Mean the world hasn't changed. Nope. Okay. okay. Moving on. So now that we have that context, let's meet our Zegners, the the family that we're going to be following around for a bit here. So Ma, Pa, and the two Zegner daughters are all on stage describing to the audience their current status as aspiring landowners. They've met the basic requirements. They've got a sod house, acres of grain five years of harvest and the final piece of the puzzle is a window of glass in the course of this we also learn uh, from the daughters that pa works hard drinks harder that he has a characteristic scar on his hand the quote settler's scar which shows basically where he's been blistered and re-blistered over and over again using the plow Oh, man, it's fall and I've been raking my leaves and like getting a blister on my hands from that sucks. So (laughs) yeah, do that for five years and come talk to Pa. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Uh, And we finally learn throughout all of this from the daughters that they are dead. And oh, yes, this is musically such a great moment, Uh, really just a gut punch. Um, And I think it can be done to great effect, especially if enough of the audience hasn't thoroughly read the program or doesn't already realize this. Sorry for the spoilers, our listeners. Every time you get spoilers, that's what this show is. Um, But I also don't think it really diminishes the story to not know. It's just a a really good moment, especially if you haven't been paying as close of attention. So we also learned that the Zegners uh, and the area generally has been in a drought for just ages. Nothing is growing. Times have been generally really hard for a really long time. And finally, we learn that Pa has a window. So as soon as the inspector comes, in theory, they're golden. And it's the only window. And I love this, this so much of these lyrics. And I think um, both the author of the short story, Karen Russell, and the librettist, Royce Vabrick, do just a lovely, lovely job 
the, their use of imagery is fantastic. This, this is the only window in this blue-gray ocean of tall grass. So the stage directions here read, The girls lay down in their grave, dug in a hill on the property. Their ghostly figures glow in the mound of dirt. Oh, wow. Do they just come in and out of their graves the whole time and like make mm-hmm. commentary? Do the other characters interact with them at all? Stop asking questions, Tina. Oh, all, okay. All, all will be revealed in <laughs> okay. due time. So scene two is called Miles Will Prove Up. Ma, all this time, has been intermittently washing Peter, uh, the eldest son, who is the silent actor. He's in a wash tub and he is all bloody. And we have no idea why. He's also kind of catatonic and unresponsive outside of being conscious. It's unnerving. So much of this show is unnerving. Miles is spying on this from a ways off, talking to the pig, the family pig, that he's kind of treating sort of like a pet, um, saying that Peter's not reliable, crazy from hunger, probably. So Ma scolds Peter and demands, who will deliver the window now? Pa is drunk and he spits back, send Miles. And this answer is unacceptable to Ma, who feels that Miles is too young and also probably that she doesn't want to risk the life of her youngest and last fully sentient child. Because at this point, I think we get the sense that Peter is a lost cause. And again, we don't know why. It's it's up for a lot of discussion. <laughs> so when you say deliver the window... Yes, yes, I'm getting there. It's okay. at, at this point, I'm tr- I tried really hard as I wrote this to only give you the information that the libretto had given you at the time. Okay, so, if so I'm think, asking the right questions. You're asking the, the right questions. Opera's leading me to them. Exactly. Okay. Yes. 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 Okay. So Pa is insistent. He says he's not about to forfeit their struggles. He's heard that the inspector is on his way to the area, and it's Pa's intention, we learn, that the window needs to be shared with another family also trying to prove up. He's kind of ranting and raving at this point and just really amped, and Miles makes the observation that, quote, Pa's in one of his states again. And Pa then begins to pressure and manipulate Miles into the task of carrying the window to the neighboring farm and then bringing it back home. And he's really playing on, oh, are you angling to be a man? Oh, I see a little bit of a little bit of peach fuzz coming in, a couple couple beard hairs Mm -hmm. and just really like really gross and manipulative because at the end of it, I don't know why. Like, okay, fine. Peter's unreliable. He's unresponsive. He can't take the window, whatever. Outside of being drunk currently, why can't Pa go? Oh, he's not going now? He's not going to go at all. No, I mean, like, Miles isn't leaving right now with the window? Because I thought that's what eliminated Pa as the Yes, you would think. You would think, wouldn't you? But no, he's not going to leave right this second. Okay. Let me ask this. Pa seems like a very self-centered man. Why is he so concerned about sharing the window with neighbors? Like, what's in it for him? That's a great question. I think we will talk about that at the end. Okay. Keep that that question in your head. So he's pressuring Miles into this task, and he's telling him that he has to do it both carefully so as not to break it, and stealthily so that he doesn't get caught by the inspector or anyone else, and the ruse that both of these two homesteads have their own window 
can be kept up. And finally, he warns Miles not to go telling anyone where the glass came from, saying, that's between you, me, and the livestock. What? It is a very creepy moment. Where's the glass from? So, yes. Oh my gosh, who did he kill to get the glass and steal their <laughs> horse to ride it back? I don't... What? So, yes, so now we have to know where did the window come from? So the daughters are back being creepy as fuck as they do, walking us through this flashback. And Miles helps a bit, remembering the night that Pa drunkenly confessed it all to him. Very suddenly, the musical tone changes. It's upbeat. It sounds like the kind of folk music that you might have heard or seen people dancing to at like a church picnic during that time period. Like, you know, folk dance. Mm -hmm. I imagine also that the lights Does would change. Does it very peasant dance? Uh, you know, maybe a little bit. You have to also remember that this is an ensemble cast. You've heard every single character. There is no chorus. You so, can't just have a chorus of merry peasants. No, Tina. Okay, fine. I'm sorry. <laughs> you have to pay those merry peasants. Yeah, that's true. I know. So I I also think that, like, in, in addition to the the musical sound shifting the mood really drastically i also imagine that there's probably a really dramatic shift in the lighting mm -hmm. to give us the impression that we are now in the before times so the daughters describe the scene the zegners have only just arrived and settled in nebraska and they're invited to the home of their distant or nearish neighbors mr and mrs henry yothers who have just proved up and become landowners the Zegners and Ma in particular are filled with hope witnessing this event so soon after their arrival and with no concept of how they'll have to struggle to obtain the same status. Miles describes being utterly mesmerized by the others' window. Then he tells us a few years later, the inspector was rumored to be coming back around. Pa has stopped by the others and is and he's actually acting this out. We see Pa acting this out. He stops by the others and he's calling to them and notices that their clothes are all strewn about and the pig is chewing on one of Mrs. Yother's dresses and it's just in pieces and there's little there's the little boy's tie all caked in manure. Uh, oh. And we get the haunting sense that the others' farm is abandoned. And Pa seizes his opportunity and takes the window, wraps it up in Mrs. Yothers' dress, and leaves. Wait, what happened to them, though? So he tells Ma when he gets back that he got the window bartering with a man moving back to Texas. But Miles recognizes that glass. And when Ma isn't in earshot anymore, he points that out to his father, who denies it at first. It says glass all looks the same. But Miles insists that he recognizes it as the others. And Pa says, what's the difference, Miles? Dead is gone. So they're dead. Well, probably. Okay. So I just, okay. Okay, but who killed them? Well, Pa goes on. He kind of gets caught up in his thoughts and is talking aloud this is this is the moment right this is when he's been drinking he's come back with the window and he is telling miles everything without intending to and he goes on and says 
What puzzles me is he planted a new crop, Mr. Yothers did. Queer little trees behind the wheat. Queer little trees. One grew a foot and a half, the rest smaller. Queer little things they were, shaped like crosses. Oh. Thin, thin trunks, a shade of milky white. He marvels at why anyone would plant trees in the dead of winter and resolves it must just be the confidence of a proven man. But he can't shake the image of those queer little trees, he says, with queer little knobby branches. Ivory. Okay, but they're graves. But they're graves. Yeah, they're graves. Okay, but, I think okay, too. but who dug the graves? So how many others is are there? Do we know? No, we don't. Okay. So it could be just like two people. It could be two people and their kids. Mm-hmm. Does life drive them crazy and it's like a murder-suicide thing? But then, of course, like who dug the graves? Or maybe it was like murder and then put them in their graves. What if Pa did it? What if he totally dissociated? He's not exactly a reliable narrator. Mm-hmm. He's drunk all the time. Mm-hmm. Is this something that we are supposed to speculate on from this? Yeah, absolutely. Especially because he's not... He's he never comes out and says that they are graves. They could be trees. They could just be something creepy that he saw. But he also describes them as looking an awful lot like graves and an awful lot like maybe they were constructed out of bone. Oh, whoa, I missed that. Read that part again. Yeah, he can't shake the image of those queer little trees, he says, with queer little knobby branches, ivory. Oh, holy shit. I was still thinking about, I, I was like all lost in my thoughts and I totally lost that. So they're graves with crosses made out of bones? Potentially. That's crazy. I know. I fucking love this story so much. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is so Halloween. This is so spoopra. I know. I'm so glad you asked me to do this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, tell me more. Okay, so scene changes. Uh, the Zegners, the, the daughters are back in their graves. The Zegners are sleeping in their house. But Ma wakes up and walks out. And she might be sleepwalking. Miles notices and calls out to her, but she doesn't hear him or answer. She walks over to the daughter's graves and begins to pick weeds, singing, Somehow the weeds find means to grow long after they've soaked up the blood of those we've buried. The daughters rise from their graves and stand behind Ma, just watching her as she continues to sing this lament. And she begins also to sing a psalm that she actually references much earlier as well. Um, It's like her favorite psalm. And it's, Oh God, you sent a heavy rain. And it's basically... A, a rejoicing in that God has like sent rain and caused things to grow. But it's again set to this music that's very haunting and lamenting and contradictory. Mm-hmm. And that's, the daughter. I, there's mm-hmm. something very interesting in that, in that there are weeds growing, but mm-hmm. they're in a drought and they're mm-hmm. really struggling to grow anything else. And mm-hmm. just like the implication that the weeds are watered with blood. Yeah. Oh. She also later. So I'm trying to think if I. So she comes. She comes back and says, "I'll never hate the weeds that choke our crops because they are on the graves of my daughters." Um, 
Miles is watching all this from the house and he shouts to his mother that the daughters are there, that they're singing with her. They're right behind her, but she doesn't hear. And Ma continues to sing this ode to the weeds that are above the graves of her daughters. And the daughters are just staring at Miles and he's unnerved by this. And he calls out to Ma to remind them that I'm their brother. Oh, wow. Miles is interesting. Mm-hmm. What an interesting character. He's like, he's in between, right? Mm-hmm. He's in between boyhood and like teenagerhood, which his dad points out. He's in between, like he, you know, talks to a pig and who knows if the pig talks back or understands, you know, like whatever, <laughs> you know, he he's in between that way and just like in between like life and death. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Mm, now I have a prediction, but I don't want to say because I hate it. <laughs> so at the climax of the song, Ma kind of loses it. And her song goes from this beautiful soprano to down into her chest. And it's just rage. And she sings, the inspector is a rumor. The inspector oh. is smoke. I'll never move from the graves of my daughters. So he's not real or she just doesn't think he, or she's just like lost hope. I think she's just lost hope. Okay. I mean, so so at the time, at this time period, this was the thing, right? You had all these different kind of um, hubs, home inspection offices around these different parts of the westward expansion areas. Mm-hmm. And these inspectors would go around. There wasn't a major railway yet at this time. No. That was much later. Um, And so that was still just like, you know, wagons, horseback, whatever. And it could take a really long time and they could get lost and they could forget where they'd already been because what's records keeping? We don't have Google Sheets. Well, yeah, like (laughs) how good are maps? How good are maps? Exactly. And and, and the, the inspectors are also susceptible to the same environmental factors as the families on the prairie is, you know, you could die in a blizzard you could fall off your horse you could get shot you could get attacked by one of the indigenous people who is rightfully pissed off that you're in their space yeah yep um so there's any number of reasons that the inspector might be delayed and i think that after all this time and after losing two daughters and after her oldest son has become mute and useless basically due to trauma And after her husband has turned into just a raging alcoholic and all she has left is this one young son and she's seeing it slipping away from her because she argued, no, he stays home. And Pa said, no, 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 no. He's got to go. She's, she's got no control. She's got no control. Yeah. So she's given up hope. Cut to next morning. Pa is up and at him and he has saddled the horse up for Miles and Miles is going to get going on his window delivery adventure. And Pa is going to stay home and drink because he's overdue. Yep. Care of the dog and all that. Yep. So, yeah, that's exactly what I wrote. Why doesn't Pa just go? I have no idea. Uh, so Miles is eager and Pa warns him to take no risks. He also slips him an envelope containing a bribe for the inspector, saying there's more waiting at the Zegner place and to tell the inspector that. And Miles says, okay, is there? 
and we don't get an answer i think we know the answer is that no there's there can't be more like why would they have a surplus of cash lying around or if there is more do we want to know how you got it yeah i don't want to know how we got it yeah and didn't spend it on alcohol right so miles takes off and he sings this gorgeous aria called miles and nor proving up nor is the name of his horse and she is she's his friend like the pig is kind of like his friend but he also alludes to you know <laughs> the lyrics from the beginning are uh ma says so he's uh peter's unreliable crazy from hunger probably ma says we need meat and that's why i tell you things pig because my secrets will be butchered with you <laughs> so he's not like super attached to the pig but he is very attached to nor they are friends they are off on this adventure together and she is carrying him to his destiny and they are going to prove up and he is fantasizing about someday soon having his own acres his own sod house and in the middle of this optimistic daydream we hear a clap of thunder and it begins to pour rain and mm -hmm. miles dismounts and unwraps the window saying that he's dreamt for two years of water flowing down glass and that he feels a surging green joy just then, however, he thinks he sees a human figure in the distance, but it's raining so hard that he's not sure. But then the figure slowly starts to circle him. So we're pretty sure it's a person. And Miles is spooked, and he quickly wraps up the window and mounts the horse. He calls out hello to the figure, and the music is just haunting as fuck like i can't even you guys I'm, i've had every hair on my body has been standing up for most of this because i'm hearing the score at the same time as i'm telling this i'm telling you you need to go listen to this after this like i i know i say this all the time go and listen to this and you can also get the pdf version of the libretto online if you're interested in like reading along uh, but it's in english so you don't necessarily have to but it's just it's so goddamn good okay uh, uh, la, 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 la. I'm excited to see this. <sighs> I'm excited to direct this. So wait, how are you gonna have a horse? Is there gonna be a horse on stage? No. <laughs> I I'm still in the design phases of this. I'm gonna. I don't want to say. I have a plan. Okay. Alrighty. Too many spoilers. Trying to tell everybody my recipe. Okay. So he's calling hello to the figure and it's just, I mean, it's dissonant and it's haunting and it's almost like purposefully slightly off pitch. Yeah. At certain points, there's harmonicas in this part of the show that the daughters are playing periodically. Cool. It is so fucking cool. The daughters, who again have never really left the stage for the whole show, are here now and they're singing in this penetrating metallic strident tone the words that we heard ma say earlier the inspector is a rumor the inspector is smoke and the way that the melody is composed and they kind of layer on top of each other in an echo it sounds like howling wind cool it is so goosebumps. unnerving I, dude me too like all over me they sound like howling wind and it is so unnerving and it goes on and you're just imagining being miles in this moment Ugh, and it gets worse it begins to snow hard 
What is, from a drought to he snow? He is caught in a blizzard and he's like, could this really be happening right now in the middle of this time of year? Nor throws him off and bolts. And as he falls, his eye catches the branch of a tree and is cut and his socket fills with blood. And all the while the daughters are singing in that same metallic tone, this ruthless narration of what's happening. And we sort of get the sense that this is all just a game to them. Okay. Miles is lost and terrified and frantically reciting the verse he's heard his mother say a million times. And one-eyed. <laughs> yep. And he's, he's saying, oh, God, you've sent a heavy rain. And he blacks out. And the stage directions here are perfect, so I'm going to read them. Miles comes to. The blizzard has given way to a mist that pervades the landscape. A black-lipped sodbuster, gaunt of willowy frame and blackened face, sits in the distance, wearing a hat that covers his eyes. Miles and the sodbuster stand at the same time and simultaneously call to each other, Inspector? They move hesitantly towards each other. Miles points out that they are, and this is no longer the stage directions, I'm just still reading it like a creeper because it's so creepy. Miles points out that they are both mistaken and asks if the sodbuster has seen the inspector and if the sodbuster is also lost. And at first his response seems normal, but quickly he begins to speak in riddles and non sequiturs. Green me that wheel, grease me that dough, ground me that windmill. What? <laughs> yes. And Miles is rightfully spooked. He's like run into old Greg. Like you ever drunk babies <laughs> from a shoe? Like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh, so glad God. that tickled you. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. If you're too young for that reference or too old for that reference, go to YouTube and just <laughs> Old Greg. Just look I mean at your own peril, but search And old now Greg. old Greg is one of the hosts of the Great British Baking Show. Are you kidding me? Yeah, Noel. What? Yeah, he's old Greg. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. I am absolutely serious. Noel is old Greg. You'll have Holy to rewatch all of that now. Yeah, no kidding. Okay. <laughs> Learning something new. Okay. So, again, he's speaking in, like, uh, what's the word? mumbo jumbo it's yeah it's just nonsense it's like it's not even stream of consciousness it's just this like jumbled speech right is it nonsense that if you like parse it out after the fact you're like oh i could have like had i really thought about it at the moment i could have read something into this or Maybe is it just in, meant to be confusing for the sake in, of being confusing in this particular moment i think that it's intended to be frighteningly nonsensical okay i think we're supposed to get the impression that this guy is not in his right mind okay so can i ask sorry i'm yeah, so, no, asking please, please. questions he's black-lipped yes meaning what i don't know exactly um i would assume that we're uh, seeing rot of some kind or another uh like his teeth are not in good condition um yeah, I, I imagine him, well, we'll get into why, but he's not looking good. But what did you just find when you searched I, that? Yeah, excessive exposure to the sun, lack of mm. hydration, cigarette smoking. Okay. Okay. Yeah, sounds good to me. 
Um, and I think once we finish talking about the Sodbuster, we will accept that description at face value mm-hmm. just based on everything. I have one um, more question. I'm so yeah, sorry. No. What is a Sodbuster? Is it literally oh. what it is? Yep. It's literally just, honestly, it's a really broad, Mr. Zegner, like Pa Zegner could be referred to as a Sodbuster. Um, it's literally just like a person who goes out and busts the sod and farms the land, but he is the sod buster. Okay. Maybe he does it for hire for other people. Mm-hmm. Okay. For the record, that shit is hard to do. Like I yeah. was expanding the, the rings around my front trees at my old house earlier this summer. And like, I didn't realize how hot out it was, but to just like make one tree ring that was maybe like five feet in diameter into a six foot diameter ring oh yeah took like all day and i nearly passed out from the heat like that's crazy and what's even crazier is that you're talking about manicured lawns the Uh grass that we have on our lawns has roots that are about an inch deep at most if you have native plants on land you're looking at several feet of thick roots sometimes that you have to cut through so it was a it's a big that's a kind of a big thing to be yeah to have to farm this land from scratch and he's like tall and thin and willowy and not just like big and beefy and like totally jacked from doing all this work i mean is he eating yeah that's fair they've been in a drought Mm. you know the zegners are crazy from hunger and they've got presumably several people working together to try and make food happen and for all we know, the Sodbuster might, but. Okay. Mm. Hmm. So, yes, he's saying nonsense. It's very spoopy. Miles is spooked. But the Sodbuster sort of comes back to reality and begins to tell Miles his story, but it's still pretty disjointed. We take away that he's been here much longer than five years, long enough to lose track. He had a wife, but she, quote, wasn't worth much so impatient she lost faith lost her will to prosper had to make a break make a fresh start drove her off and plowed her under oh oh. he had sons and daughters too he says but they were weak and none of them lasted i have a prediction do you want to know my prediction? Or I, do kind, wanna... I, I kind of do. Yeah, I do. Okay, I... so you know the family whose window they now have? The Sodbuster is the father of that family, and his wife and children are in those graves with the bones. Okay. So after we hear all this, the daughters are cackling. Honestly, under normal stance, circumstances, at least in the recording, the way that they're laughing in normal circumstances it might sound like joy but here it just sounds like this sadistic insanity the sodbuster says the west is a land of infinite beginnings don't you agree miles zegner and finally he gets to the point he's picked up he's started again he's staked a new claim on new land he's fulfilled all the requirements all that is except the window window. so miles who is an adorable innocent child offers to loan the window to the sodbuster and mid-thought realizes he never told the sodbuster his name why does the sodbuster know his name Mm -hmm. and he asks him 
and the sodbuster's eyes brighten fervently, and he invites Miles to see the acres he's cultivated, his little trees grown without a drop of water. See? I was right! Oh my god! So he asks Miles to help him put the window in, and Miles has this brief, lovely, haunting aria in which he ponders, what makes a home? Does a deed make a home? Does a window make a home? Pa made tables from scratch, and Ma sat in their home and made two quilts by candlelight. And he says, our sod house, even windowless, is a home. This is a tomb. And he starts to realize things are going very awry. And he demands that the sodbuster give back the window, who torts back, you stole it. Your father did. When Miles presses him as to how he knows that, the sodbuster ignores him, continuing on about when the inspector comes and sees my window. Miles grabs the sodbuster's knife and lunges at him and stabs him, but he won't die. He holds the window as a barrier between himself and Miles, and the daughters run circles around them. The sodbuster demands, I thought you said you weren't a thief, Miles. The funny thing about windows, sometimes we see things we don't want to see. Have you proven up, Miles? Holy shit, I have goosebumps. And he drags Miles off stage. Oh no, he's already killed his wife and his kids. My prediction about Miles is about to come true, isn't it? <laughs> so we go to black. And the lights okay. come up on the Zegner house and Ma and Pa and Peter are going about their day waiting for Miles to come back when they see off in the distance what they think is the inspector and they're excited. Every stipulation is met. They're going to prove to everyone back east that it was worth it, that they could do it. Quickly, however, they realize that what they're actually seeing is a strange man, the sodbuster, approaching and dragging Miles's body. They're shocked and devastated, and the actor who plays Miles slowly stands and walks to join his sisters standing over their graves. And Ma collapses and sings in that same rageful tone, God, you are a rumor. God, you are smoke. Holy shit. The stage directions at the end read, the sodbuster pushes Ma into the house and she stops singing. Pa does not react. He seems to be in a trance and starts to take on the characteristics of the sodbuster. The sodbuster disappears into the house and Pa remains fixated on the window. All the while we hear all of them singing hauntingly, a house of sod, acres of grain, five years of harvest, a window of glass, all that's required holy shit the end the end oh my god i love this right <laughs> it's so good the sod buster is all of us eventually i know <laughs> i honestly oh my god honestly it it did not initially the first time i first several times honestly that i listened to it that i read it it didn't really I didn't believe that he, that the sodbuster is Mr. Yothers. I do now, but I also think that he's Mr. Yothers the same way that, and I think this is done at the end, Pa is the sodbuster. Pa is Mr. Yothers. 
Yeah. They're, all of these families are running into this same machine yeah. that's chewing them up and spitting them out in the same manner. Yeah. Well, then somebody is going to come to the Zegner house and find mm-hmm. the window and everybody's gone and there are going to be queer little trees. Yep. Oh, man. That's crazy. Yeah. Westward expansion is a vampire of the soul. Yeah. <laughs> you can quote me on that. Yep. <laughs> yep. I guess the one the one question mark for me is this rain and snowstorm. Mm-hmm. And I guess it kind of ties into the sisters as well, because Miles is the only one who sees them. Mm. Um, and Miles is the only one who experiences a rain and snowstorm. Mm. That's interesting. I would have to refer back to the short story to see if there were more um, details that confirm that maybe the Sodbuster also experiences it. Um I am inclined to believe that it's happening just because Nor is so agitated during that scene that she throws him off. But again, I think I would want to refer back to the short story to be totally sure. Yeah, that's a good point, though. I do wonder if, like, it's maybe, like, because he's kind of lost in a daydream at that point. And he does Mm. seem a little daydreamy. But, of course, you've pointed out that they're malnourished and probably dehydrated Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. he's already prone to flights of fancy it seems yes yeah so i i'm gonna go ahead and say that it's probably not a real storm okay but entitled to that (laughs) okay also just the presence of the sod buster and like this weird magical realism element this i would call Mm -hmm. this magical realism really Mm. yeah i guess you could I guess you could probably call a lot of supernatural stories magical realism. To a certain extent, I guess, yeah, this is probably more supernatural because of the ghosts. Yeah. And again, for the audience, if you hadn't listened to uh, one of our episodes from this month, I can't remember which, we talked about magical realism as a literary tool. um, And it's essentially, it's not full fantasy. It's the story is realistic the circumstances are believable but there's an element or two that are kind of fantastical in and of themselves but within the context of the story all of the characters accept them as normal or are not aware of them or are not aware of them yeah yes yeah so yeah it was was... when we talked about shostakovich the nose two episodes ago yes correct seems so long ago um yeah magical realism i'm excited for this i actually bought the entire book of short stories that this comes from it's It's real good vampires in the lemon grove and it's it's just like a very charming title um but i started reading the short story and then as soon as i realized i was going to ask you to do this i stopped so i got like two paragraphs into miles head and his character as as like just a very enthusiastic little boy and Mm -hmm. you know um how he thinks about the people in his life and do Mm -hmm. we kind of get that like he thinks ma is kind of losing it and he doesn't really have much to say about pa's drinking but he takes a lot of the things that pa says to heart yeah he's really innocent you know and he's i mean he's supposed to be 11 and this is these are the only people that he interacts with for the most part you know like when you're out in this setting you might see another family 
once a month at most. Yeah. Because how many acres of land do they get? Five. No, For I'm five sorry. Five years. It's five years. It's uh, up to 160, I think. Okay. That's a lot of freaking it's land. It's a big Holy chunk shit. of land. It's a lot of land. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's all just being freshly colonized. And so who's to say that any of the sod houses are within any kind of proximity to each other? Yeah, probably you know? not. You've got a parcel huh. of land and you find the spot on that land that's dry and is... You know, there's there's already a hill there, so you don't have to build the sod house entirely from scratch, and you dig it out, and yeah, there might not be people for miles and miles and miles and miles. Um, so yeah, he's he's innocent. He doesn't know much else. I mean, if he's eleven now and they've been there for five years, he's been here since he was seven. What is that? No, six, six. He's been here since mm -hmm. he was six. I have a five-year-old. It's a very early stage of development. You don't remember a lot from before you were six. Yeah. And yeah. the things that happen in those five years can be very impactful on yes. shaping how you perceive the world. And he is in a near constant state of trauma for five years. Yeah. And yeah. so it makes perfect sense to me that he would be sort of detached but aware that Ma is kind of losing it. Yeah. Tell me more about Peter. <laughs> I wish that I could. <laughs> he is such a mysterious character. There is so little said about him. Um, in the short story, we get a tiny bit more context. And he actually does speak a, a very little bit, but he doesn't say much. I should have I should have built in enough time to reread the short story before we did this tonight, because I'm sure there's some little nugget in there um but i was actually just talking with the actor who is playing peter um when we did the short film a couple weeks ago just speculating around this like what is his deal why why is he the way that he is and covered in blood <laughs> and covered in blood like where did that come from did that's he a very a big question mark with for me. whom did he you know is it self-harm is it he just got himself into a situation out in nature and came back after several days all bloodied up or what or is he it? killed like, the inspector mm. <laughs> that seems like a pretty major element to not hint at at any point in the story but i guess it's possible <laughs> i don't know well, i mean the inspector is smoke he's a rumor he's not yeah. coming because peter killed him <laughs> I mean, it's possible. It's entirely possible. I, that's the thing is you just you just really don't know what you take away from Peter is that he what's the word he flickered out. You know, yeah. if he's like what 17, it says. So he got here when he was 12. He got here at the age that Miles basically is now. And he was full of hope and he was thinking he was going to prove up and get his own sod house. And then he lived in a state of constant trauma but in a much more aware headspace than a five-year-old would have been, a six-year-old. And so he witnessed all this trauma and didn't have the same childlike, tragic ability to kind of absorb it and swallow it and push through it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because we know that children are extremely resilient when it comes to trauma. And the older you get, 
I mean, you can still be resilient, but I think that it impacts you differently. It beats you down more. You're a little bit more self-aware and aware of what life is in normal circumstances by contrast. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it can maybe be a little more devastating, at least in terms of, I don't know, for Peter, it seems like it's devastated him in a way that has robbed him of his ability to function yeah i just i want to speculate that peter is what miles could become yeah after just like the loss of innocence for lack of a better term and it seems like people can't survive in this situation and remain innocent for too long and this story and and just like the states that the characters are in it shows you know you get innocence with miles you get the loss of innocence with peter you get the loss of that innocence and hope with ma and then you get like a dark sinister turn with pa slash the mm -hmm. sod buster slash are they the same person i don't know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and i wonder if like miles maybe got the better end of things because he never lost his innocence yeah yep compared to everybody else in this story same with the daughters yeah yeah but now the daughters are like a more sinister thing as well they are i think that they so they don't really show up in the short story at all they're they're more of a mechanism in the opera mm -hmm. um so i think that part of what we're seeing with the daughters is we're seeing Miles's impression manifestation of the ghosts of his sisters. Mm -hmm. We're because we experience a lot of this story through Miles's narration when it's being narrated. Okay, we hear everybody gets an aria like. Well, that's not true. Miles, Ma, and Pa all and the Sodbuster all get an aria, in which they get to kind of reveal their character to us. Um, but when we're looking at scenes where there's interaction or where there's more objective, high-level description of events, we're seeing it either through Miles's eyes or the daughters are telling the story. Yeah. It's a very awesome storytelling mechanism. Yep. And then because he's the only one that ever sees them or hears them, I think we can take away, and because they kind of haunt him. You know, they, they stare at him and they fuck with him during the sodbuster scenes. Like they're cackling yeah. and they're, I, I don't think I did a good enough job describing their presence during those scenes. It is terrifying. Like they're there the whole time just fucking with him, just existing in the background and watching all this go down. And so if we imagine that, the daughters are only there when Miles sees them there, sees them be there. It, oh, yeah, it's just very, I spooked myself and I don't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's what spooper is all about. Oh, boy. Oh, man. I feel like I'm going to have heart palpitations as I sleep tonight. <laughs> It's, you know, just get a palate cleanser. Go watch an episode of Bob's Burgers or something. It's, it'll be fine. Yeah. But yeah. It's, yeah. It's real spooky. And I very much recommend that everybody go and listen to this. I know that the um, soundtrack is available on Apple Music. 
um, which I pay. That's I, I. That's my Spotify. I pay for Apple Music. I don't pay for Spotify. I would bet that it's on Spotify, but I don't know. Missy Mazzoli also has a website, missymazzoli.com. She does. And I think there are excerpts of things. There are excerpts. Website. However, plug your ears, Missy Mazzoli. Uh, if you go to YouTube, you can you can definitely find uh, there's you can find songs. Um, so yeah, it's great. It's real good. Um, it's very spooptober. It's very spoopra. Um, it's like the perfect way to end our whole month of spoopra. It really is. It really is, Tita. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm I really so enjoyed myself. I don't want to start telling more synopses, though. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. I'm so glad you did this one, at least. Yeah. <laughs> I might opt in from time to time, but this was more nerve-wracking than I was anticipating. <laughs> I appreciate how much work you put into it and what a good storyteller you are. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, I'm going to definitely post um, my source for learning about the Homestead Act, which is really interesting. I'm also going to try to find some more uh, because one thing that I I don't love about this telling of this story is just the absence of of pointing at the fact that it's colonization. Obviously, this story is strictly about this family and what happens to them. Mm -hmm. And so there's not really a logical place that it would fit in to be like, oh, and by the way, we stole this land from the Dakota people or what have you. Um, And it's not really made mention of in the short story either. I think that in the years post start of the pandemic i think that the general public has done a lot more um waking up to and reflecting on the absence of facts along those lines in the general narrative around Mm -hmm. how the united states came to be a place um and so i i don't know that there's necessarily a place in the story where it should be inserted however i do think that it is important anytime we're talking about white colonization that we have this in our brain spaces as well oh yeah and create it as a use it as a resource while putting on this opera and make sure that people have yep a way to you know access more information about this yep. or yep. you know in in and create a space for conversation about it exactly because it's it's so important i mean we are on dakota land here in minnesota yep. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, yes, of course, from the perspective of the story, an 11-year-old white boy who doesn't understand the problematic, problematic nature of what it is that their family is doing, this is mm-hmm. just life, like, of, of course, there's not room for it in the narrative as it is. No. And if we were to do an opera about that, it would have to really be about that. You right. Know? And I so also in think... its defense, but like tangentially yeah. related to it, there needs to be space for that conversation. It, exactly. So I'm definitely going to try and pull together some particularly good resources around that. Um, it's along the lines of what I'm trying to curate for the, um, the event itself. Um, I also think it is fitting and appropriate and good <laughs> and right that this opera is, like you said, basically saying that the story itself too is that colonization is a vampire 
that eats itself like it is yeah white people were the monster the entire time we we created and were the monster that destroyed literally everything (laughs) and it's kind of on the nose um so i think yeah i think there's a lot that resonates in this story at the end of the day i think the very first time i heard it or even read it or i'm not sure which my my takeaway my initial takeaway was wow yeah you can check every box in this country you can check every single box and still just get your ass handed to you by the system but also the system is a little bit arbitrary a glass window yeah yes so that was in the very beginning when i talked about like oh the specific improvement requirements from what my reading from my reading sounds like those were pretty much up to the individual land offices of the region okay and kind of arbitrary to your point like it's up to that person it's up to their whims and what they think is fitting and what some other person before them thought was a good idea and bureaucracy 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 ad nauseum until you have dead daughters and dead sons and dead crops and you've wasted five years of your life and everything you ever had and here you are yep Oh, also the indigenous people have been <laughs> run off of this land and are now being tortured and kidnapped and oh my god. Yeah, it's what just it's really bleak. For the indigenous people are all just watching this from the background as another layer of ghosts. Yeesh. Yeesh. Woo! Too spoopra. Okay, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean I mean, I see them constantly in my mind's eye as I'm telling this story, but like, yeah. Oh, I definitely saw that too. Okay. All right. Yeah. It's definitely very present Maybe in my mind. Maybe you just make the suggestion of that before or like in your director's notes and yeah, say that's just a, like, That's imagine. an idea. That's an idea. That is an idea. I definitely am going to be trying to incorporate some interactive elements and um, trying to engage some... Um, companies or nonprofits either run by or focused on or both indigenous uh, people's housing issues in particular housing is a big theme here um I'm talking and also talking about like redlining and just generally how the systems of white supremacy have put everyone including white people <laughs> although to a much lesser extent at in a bind and at a disadvantage and have has wrecked a lot of capitalism and property ownership have have wrecked a lot of things about society as a whole and and created a lot of really shitty circumstances for a lot of people so (sighs) on that note on that note thanks for listening everybody (laughs) super uplifting one this week if you want to tell us, I mean, this is our last spoopra. So if you want to tell I'm us so what sad. you think should be on next year's spoopra calendar, oh, yeah. you can email that to us at operaplothappyhour at gmail.com. Yeah, we and definitely you, didn't hit all the spooky operas. We did not. No, hit I feel all like we've them. barely scratched the surface and now it's Halloween. I know. And we have to move on. And if you haven't bought your candy yet, you better hustle. Go to Aldi.
uh, our Aldi is basically scrubbed clean. Oh, no. Yeah. You can come to my Aldi. Okay. I might have to. I I'll might have, have an to. extra quarter for your cart. Justin Justin bought the candy and brought it home. And, and then I was like, do you remember that we have both a trunk or treat and actual trick or treating? And he was like, oh, crap. So we need like twice as much candy as what he brought home. So I will probably come visit you. Okay. <laughs> And if you have more tips about where we can get our Halloween candy, you can email that to us at operaplothappyhour@gmail.com. <laughs> if you want to know more about the show, you can visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or check out our website at operaplothappyhour.com. It's true. And I do have our link tree up and running. So if you are on Instagram um, and you head to our bio, um, and I think... I think the same is true for Twitter. I'm not sure. But definitely uh, the, the the only link that you get in Instagram in your bio now goes to our link tree, which currently just has our website episodes and um, our Patreon. But as time goes on, I guarantee you that there will be more cool things. One of them will be some of the links from this episode today. And you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify while you're there please do write and review us. We really appreciate it. It helps other people find the show algorithmically and it makes us feel good about ourselves, which is a real gift, you guys. Yeah, we, we're going to need it after this episode. <laughs> Man, I'm going to have nightmares. So since it is the end of Spoopra and we are moving into November, we thought that we would bring you guys an entire month of Nope-vember, which is just to say that Opera has a history of very problematic pieces, some of which are probably le better left in the past. And so we are just going to explore a whole month of those November Nopras. <laughs> Operas that probably should not continue to be performed. Yes. And so next week, we're going to start with Mozart. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. And this week, I will leave you with a quote from William Makepeace Thackeray. Make peace like make a piece of something or make peace like please be peaceful. Like the word make and the word peace as in like doves and olive branches. Make oh. peace, but it's one word. Interesting. William Makepeace Thackeray. And he says, an evil person is like a dirty window. They never let the light shine through. <laughs>